Welcome to the Arts and Humanities podcast for 26th of February 2008. Today we have a recording of a seminar at the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies, recorded on February the 25th. The speaker during this seminar was Harry Bingham, who is the author of five novels and a recently published non-fiction title. During this talk, Harry Bingham speaks about the author-publisher relationship in the 21st century, the issues and challenges that that relationship presents and the ways in which it could be improved. Okay, well, um, Harry Bingham uh, is an author as well as everything else, as you can see from, he's brought in a few of his books, most of them, uh, the fiction uh, published with HarperCollins and recently, I believe, a non-fiction book uh, published with Fourth Estate. Um, he's also, uh, which is even more interesting for us as publishers, the editorial director of the Writers' Workshop, which is a company which offers editorial advice to writers, screenwriters and poets. And um, as I mentioned earlier in the lecture, you can see all about them on their website, which is www.writersworkshop.co.uk. And that's quite enough from me. I'll hand over to Harry. Let me just expand on that excellent bit of background, which is better than anything HarperCollins have done, because it contained no factual errors. Um, <laughs> I was at um, the other university in Oxford as an undergraduate, and then went to the city, where I worked for about 10 years, and then my wife got ill, and she, she was seriously ill, and, and I gave up work to look after her, and literally started, I needed something to do other than mopping her fevered brow, and started writing a novel, which uh, eventually I found an agent for, uh, and HarperCollins picked it up, um, and that was my first book, and other books have followed. I don't have all of my books here. Um, this is the third one, uh, The Sons of Adam. It's kind of, you can probably tell from the cover, it's kind of uh, mass market commercial fiction. I mean, what I guess I would hope it was, was somewhere between uh, a well-written Geoffrey Archer and a kind of fairly commercial, sort of crossover literary commercial fiction. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, area, the territory I live in. That was the third novel. Uh, that was the fourth novel. Very similar territory. That was the fifth novel. Um, as you can see, I mean, just putting those two together, the sort of, in terms of branding, the publishers made a really big change. I mean, this, you probably wouldn't pick up if you were a girl, and this you probably wouldn't pick up if you were a boy. In fact, the, the German publishers with this one, they said, love the book, really excited, um, but we've always marketed you as um, a kind of male financial thriller writer, and this isn't a financial thriller, it's just got no financial thrillery elements in it, um, and it has a love story at the heart of it, with quite a lot of adventure and war and politics and stuff, but there's a love story at the heart of it. They said, would, would I mind changing, you know, they were going to change the book cover and the styling of the book cover, but would, they, would I mind changing my name for this? So I said, fine. I mean, my names are actually Thomas Henry Bingham, so I said, what about Tom Henry? That's fine. They were like, thank you, that, that was very kind, but um, they were actually thinking of a girl's name. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I kind of gulped and said, OK, fine. So this book is coming out in Germany under the name Emma Makepeace. <laughs> um, uh, and then, um, all of these books I sold to HarperCollins for a reasonably large amount of money. Um, 
that's to say large amounts of money by the standards of what authors generally get paid. But they weren't really, well, to put it bluntly, they were losing HarperCollins quite a lot of money. Um, and as you can see from these covers, they were really, and, and the f if I brought the first two novels along as well, they were all really different covers. In other words, they were twisting the branding from book to book to book, trying to find, they always believed in the writing, but they were trying to find the branding formula that kind of worked to act actually shift copies. Um, and the truth is they never really found it. They lost, <laughs> over the five novels, they lost quite a lot of money, which I I'm happy about because that money ends up in my pocket. <laughs> um, but yeah, they clearly weren't going to go on paying me for just having a wonderful way with sentences, um, but with no kind of prospect of, of getting the money back again. So I didn't want to do another novel for them and came up with um, I changed agents because my agent said she loved working with me on the fiction, but if I wanted to do kind of historical type non-fiction, which is what I was talking about for the next book, uh, she thought she wasn't the right agent, so I got um, a different agent who's excellent. Um, uh, and I worked with him on the book proposal, and once we got it right, and the, sold the book, went out to publishers with a proposal that I guess was... 10 or 15,000 words. In other words, well, well short of a full-length manuscript. And there was a frenzied auction uh, among publishers. Uh, and this book resulted, which is historical non-fiction. It's kind of about British exceptionalism and all the ways in which British history has been just different, n not necessarily better than or worse than, but just different from those of its neighbours. Um, so that's kind of my background as far as being a writer is concerned. I also, as um, Helen mentioned in the introduction, um, I run an editorial consultancy called The Writer's Workshop, where we, first-time writers who are struggling to get published, come to us with their manuscript, and we pass it on to uh, a kind of top-quality professional author. So I'm not talking about somebody who has published a pamphlet on squirrel feeding published by the Little Acorn Press or something. I'm talking about you know, major books with major publishers, and a lot of our guys have won or been shortlisted for really big awards. So, you know, it is a, it is a quality service, and that's <coughs> um, what I do, as it were, to, to keep it some kind of reliable income going, because there's nothing very reliable about a writer's income. Um, now, I've knocked around in publishing enough with all of this, and, yeah, through the Writer's Workshop, I know... Um, I don't know, 60 or 70 professional writers. Um, I know a lot of agents, including Peter Buckman, who's coming to see you in a little while. Um, so by the standards of most authors, I mean, most authors have quite a narrow point of contact with the publishing industry. That's to say they know their editor and their agent, and they know about the history of their books, but they don't. I, I have a much greater breadth of experience than that, um, which has made me vastly more jaundiced. <laughs> um, what we're going to be talking about is, is the relationship of publishers to writers. And I guess I you know, need to be clear that I am coming this from a particular viewpoint, which is to say mainstream um, kind of commercial fiction and non-fiction. And when I say commercial, I'm not excluding literary, but I'm talking about the stuff that either does end up on the 352 tables at Waterstones or, or wants to be ending up there. So, you know, I'm not talking about academic publishing or, you know, all the different varieties of specialist publishing. I'm not talking about poetry publishing. 
I'm talking about, you know, the, the sort of main body of the sort of penguin, HarperCollins, Hotter Headline, whatever type powerhouses. The, the focus on, you know, bigger books, I guess. Um, <coughs> and there are a number of, I mean, first of all, it's worth describing the, the typical author's experience. Um, I mean, let, let's assume that that author already has an agent, okay, which already <laughs> means that they're very close to the end of the path from most authors' point of view, but that's, you know, not even at the beginning of the path from the publisher's point of view. Um, a publisher gets a manuscript via an agent. Um, the agent won't particularly talk to the author about who uh, he's going to be sending books out to because, in the end, that's something the agent knows a lot about and the author is unlikely to know much about. So the agent picks the publishers and picks the individuals at the publishers. Um, publishers, let's say my editor at... Um, fourth set has a wonderful name of Mitzi Angel, which I thought had to be a made-up name, but uh, no, that's really her name. Um, and so Mitzi got, for this book, um, she got uh, a proposal landing on her desk, 10 or 15,000 words, so let's say a couple of hours reading that. Um, she probably read that certainly within four hours and got an offer back to the agent within that time. Now, that's unusual. Um, that, uh, then a competitive situation developed and other publishers came in and HarperCollins, to their credit, within 24 hours had had a significant number of people <coughs> in the organisation, including the chief executive, in including Victoria Barnsley, read the proposal and they upped their offer and came back with an offer that was level pegging with, with one other but for various reasons ended up with HarperCollins. Now, at this point, I haven't spoken to anyone HarperCollins, and indeed, the people at HarperCollins who are dealing with this book are not the ones who have dealt with any of those, and I think they had already made their final offer before actually talking to Susan Opie, who is my editor for all of these books. Um, at that point, uh, I have uh, a phone call with Mitzi at Fourth Estate. I have a phone call with the woman who would have been my editor at the other publisher who was bidding at that level for the book. They were bidding identical amounts, so my decision about which company to go with was entirely based on those phone calls. And to be fair, my prior experience with HarperCollins, although I'm working with such a different bit of HarperCollins, that wasn't a huge factor. Um, so, yeah, Fourth Estate acquired the book, essentially on the basis of the proposal and phone call with me that might have lasted half an hour or something. Um, in terms of editorial input, um, it, it was staggered because I sort of gave the manuscript to them in, in batches, which is what you wouldn't normally do for fiction, but which we did do for this for various reasons. And I got handwritten notes on the book, no kind of formal report, um, and sat next to Mitzi for about 20 minutes discussing that. Now, again, that is probably less editorial input than most authors would get, but I kind of knew what I was doing, and non-fiction, the issues are all, always a bit simpler than they are with fiction. Um, but let's say with fiction, my editorial, I'd normally get, ooh, say, six pages of A4 notes on my draft. 
Uh, but those would tend to be things like on page 279 you have a character walk into the room but he doesn't speak until page 283 maybe on page 281 you need to remind the reader that he's out I mean, it, it was sort of mostly those sort of points they're important but they're not they're not crucially shaping the book um, and I guess in fiction my average uh, length of confrontation with my editor about editorial stuff would be well, certainly wouldn't exceed 45 minutes, probably more like 30 minutes. And uh, normally there was really only one round of kind of editorial work. Sometimes there were two, I, I guess. Um, but, but, but then the second time you would get less editorial input than the first time. Um, cover design. Um, all my contracts with HarperCollins and Forza State have always given me the contractual right to be consulted on cover design. It's very nice. It means they say, here is your cover design. <laughs> what do you think? And you say, I like it, or I don't like it, or I'm really not sure. And then they say, yeah, but you'll really like it once it's on the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you think I'm joking, but I'm not really joking. Um, I mean, there was a partial exception with this one. This was the only... I got an email from them with this one, which said, um, Harry, we've got some great cover designs. Why don't you come down to town to have a look at our cover designs? And I thought, whoa, being treated like a grown-up. That's very nice. Um, I went down to London, and I live north of Oxford, and you know, driving into Hammersmith and, and back again. I don't get a lot else done in a day if you know, making that trip and... You cannot see a publisher without having lunch with them. You can see a publisher at nine in the morning, and at kind of half past nine, they once you finish the business of a meeting, they think, "Got to have lunch." It just <laughs> there's like this kind of biological impulse. You know, if you're a publisher, if you have this kind of lunch <laughs> impulse. So yeah, by the time you've kind of talked cover designs and had lunch, and, and driven back to Oxford, that is most of the day gone. And in fact, they did. On the one hand, they did have six cover designs available for us to look at. Uh, on the other hand, they were the same cover design. <laughs> um, this is a book which talks a lot about British exceptionalism. I guess the natural market for this would be uh, blokes 40 years old or older um, and probably a little bit more small C conservative than anything else. And what they had come up with, because Fourth Estate is quite a, uh, it's a very good publisher. Um, but they, they're, they're kind of quite young, quite uh, trendy isn't the right word, but um, uh, innovative, and, and they place you know, quite a lot of emphasis on that. Um, not staid. Um, and they had come up with, with cover designs that would have looked great for, let's say, the private eye reading market. They were edgy, they were quite ugly, but ugly in a kind of contemporary, urban, slightly radical way which was, roughly speaking, the opposite <laughs> of the actual audience for this book. And so, although we were looking at six cover designs, they were basically variants on a theme, uh, and they would have sunk the book like a stone. I mean, I think it's, it, it's fair to say that. So we said, my agent was there as well, and as a matter of fact, it's quite hard for an author at a meeting like that. You have no idea what is about to be displayed, and then they go, ta-da, cover design. <laughs> um, and actually, if one had had any sort of time to reflect on it, one would have just said, no, that's 
that's really no good. And as it was, and again, I'm an author who's knocked around long enough to be able to say, I'm really not sure about this. And then in phone calls afterwards said, no, that's really not working. So then they came up with another design, which was tremendously bold. It didn't actually, small detail, and I, again, I'm not kidding here, it did not have the title of the book on the front cover. <laughs> <laughs> so you could <laughs> look at the book. And it, the idea was, it said, um, Little Britain. So the N ended here on, on the inside back flap, and the L started there. So if you actually looked at this, it said Rita. <laughs> Maybe, except you couldn't see all of the A, and there was a little bit of the B popping in from here. So, innovative, yes, clever. <laughs> um, anyhow, um, there is a limit to how far an author can push on these things, and I kind of continued to communicate not rightness here. And they started tinkering with this cover. They kind of recognised that, yes, they needed to put the title of the cover on the book, but rather than saying, that's a botched cover design, they just stuck the title on again. So you've got Rita here with Little Britain above it. And then it's got a subtitle, How One Small Country Built the Modern World. And then you've got my name on it. So it became a really congested, clumsy cover design. Um, and in the end, Mitzi took the bull by the horns and said, we do need a rethink. And they came up with this, which I think, I don't know if you can see it at the back, but I think it's a fantastic cover design. It's absolutely, it's got a kind of, wit, it's got a lightness, it's got a kind of nostalgic quality to it. Uh, it, it it's just spot on for the market, and, and it's spot on for the book. It, it's sort of one of those covers that actually enhances the content of the book. There's a nice reverberation between cover and content there. Um, but it was really quite alarming, the, from the author's point of view, the process by which we got here. Not what you would call a rational or obvious process. Um, Public relations. A, a book like this, th there's, there's quite a lot of PR potential. Um, so this is, I think it's fair to say, no one has ever written a book before that takes a broader look at British exceptionalism, what has made Britain exceptional in British history. Now that should be a quite PRable book. Um, and I'll have to give uh, forces, uh, on the whole, I'd want to be clear, actually, this is the best published book I've ever had. Uh, and I think Fourth Estate are certainly one of the best publishers in the UK. I mean, you have a sort of slightly different vantage point, but you would agree with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, top quality publisher, uh, Mitzi Angel, one of the rising stars in Fourth Estate. Um, and this is a well-published book. So, as I'm talking to you now, th this is, should not be portrayed as uh, a kind of alarming series of catastrophes. This is, this is publishing. This is a good version of publishing. Um, so, PR. Um, again, you might want to think, w what is a rational process uh, in kind of thinking about PR, and what is the actual process? Um, you would have thought, for example, that when the PR guy, again, who's a really smart, nice guy at Fourth Estate, who I've got a lot of respect for, um, but you would think, in drawing up a press release to market this book, you would show that press release to the author, yes? It, as a matter of mere courtesy, you would probably, even if you didn't show it to the author before sending it out, you would copy the author on it. I've never actually seen the press release for this, uh, or for that, or for that, or for that. 
Um, I might have seen it for one of these, actually. Um, but that's not the same as having real input into it. Um, I would also say that I spent probably 20 minutes with Robin Harvey, who's a um, PR guy, talking about PR opportunities for this. And actually, well, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of talk about a little bit, let, let me talk about what actually happened, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what, what could have happened and how logically these things ought to happen. Um, but so, kind of 20 minutes, maybe half an hour, of talking with Robin Harvey about um, PR things, but mostly he just got on with it. Again, Fourth Estate, they put some real welly behind this book and actually hired an outside PR agency to help with certain aspects. And they were, you know, they were willing to spend money, they were willing to be really quite innovative, and they commissioned a, um, uh, an opinion poll through uh, YouGov, I think, uh, and spent three grand on that, which, you know, in publishing standards is, is a reasonable chunk of change, uh, and hired a PR agency to launch the opinion poll and, and to get kind of publicity for that. And, I mean, as it happened, we didn't get very much publicity that way, but that's one of those things. You know, it's... Uh, if, if the dice had fallen very slightly differently, I think we could have got a lot of excellent publicity and that could really have started the ball rolling. Um, again, but that was, that was certainly imaginative publishing and a willingness to, to put some money behind the book. Um, in terms of marketing, well... I guess the typical author in my kind of area, that's to say, you, you know, this, this sort of bigger kind of, whether we're talking fiction or non-fiction, but, but the sort of bigger type book. Um, the very first book I launched in 2000, um, HarperCollins paid for posters on the underground, posters at big, big posters at Paddington and a few other kind of London stations, um, and a bit of other stuff, but they've certainly actually had some direct consumer advertising so that consumers thought, gosh, book by Harry Bingham, that sounds interesting. Um, there was a little bit of that with the second book. With this, there were two posters at Gaswick Airport. Um, by the time we got to here, which is the fifth book, uh, there was nothing at all. This book, which was, I mean, I got more money for this book than for any of the others, so, so this isn't a question of financial commitment on the part of the publishers. Uh, there was no consumer advertising whatsoever. Uh, the reason for that is um, that consumer advertising is dead. Um, it's not dead if you're Martin Nicole or Jeffrey Archer or somebody like this. Um, it's dead for everybody else. And the reason is that uh, booksellers are eating marketing budgets. So there was a substantial marketing budget for this book, <laughs> and it went into the pockets of, you know, Waterstones and Borders and, and places like that. So um, Fourth Estate basically bought a place on the three for two tables or the you know, new for autumn books or wh whatever it was. I mean, the different deals with different stores. Um, uh, and they would have paid for that shelf space. I don't know uh, in, in hard terms how much they spent, but that was where their budget went. Uh, and of course, you know, th their um, marketing people would have been talking to, would have been bigging the book up to their counterparts at Waterstones and Borders and everybody else. Uh, but there was no other marketing effort at all that I'm aware of. Uh, the book 
had one review, which was extremely positive, in the Mail on Sunday. Uh, I've had probably better feedback on this book than anything else I've ever written. Um, the book sold five or 6,000 copies, which is to say about a third, let's say, of what Forces State wanted to, to sell. Um, and how do you explain that? I guess um, uh, mostly it's just that uh, the Christmas non-fiction hardbacks area, you are dicing with death unless you've got a TV show. Uh, if you looked at the top 20 um, uh, books on the bestseller list for this sort of pre-Christmas hardback non-fiction, there are 18 uh, TV tie-in type books or celebrity-related books of one sort or another, uh, which leaves only two slots on that list, one of which was taken by the Guinness Book of Records <laughs> and one by the Match Football Annual. Uh, in other words, th there were no books like this in that top 20. Um, so, in a sense, you can't say that Fourth Estate failed because there was simply no, no one who succeeded at all. Um, the book was branded, by the way, as a kind of novelty-type book. Uh, and the reason for that is to make it a kind of really attractive gift book for the Christmas market. So they did, because it could, it could have gone different ways. The, the blurb on the back could have really spoken about what kind of book it is. And as it is, it's like, how is Agatha Christie better than Dostoevsky? What does James Dean owe to Beau Brummel? It's kind of novelty-type questions on the back. So they could have gone a different way, but they, they said, this is a Christmas book, let's market it for the Christmas market. That's meant to be a nice gift size book, nice sort of slippable into a Christmas stocking sort of thing. So they, had, they did have a coherent sense of what product they were creating and what market they were creating it for. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it didn't work. Um, th so that talks about the process on that book. Um, and I get, let, let's, let's get a little bit more interactive here. But um, I guess one of the questions, on the whole, the way authors interact with publishers is uh, it's a very friendly industry, publishing. Um, I, I would always kiss my editor hello, for example, never shake hands, whereas when I was an investment banker, I don't recall ever kissing anyone. <laughs> Indeed, it would be absolutely bizarre in banking <laughs> to go on. and in publishing it would be kind of bizarre not to you'd be thought a little so, so you know it's, that's, that's a nice thing about the industry um, you know the, the number of lunches I've had paid for by HarperCollins and they live very close to the River Cafe in London so I've been to the River Cafe on many many occasions and I have some lovely food um, but it's all really uh, I, I think you know, an author might not understand this the first or second or third book, but, but the longer you hang out in the industry, and particularly talking to other authors, as I say, as I do a lot, you realise that publishers actually keep authors at a comfortable distance. I think, I mean, this is my honest theory, and again, I'm not making this up, I think authors, publishers tend to be a little bit nervous of authors. They think, this person is a creative, they're probably, you know, it's, it's like sort of dealing with a kind of Second World War bomb. It's, it's probably safe, <laughs> haven't seen it go off, but it might do. It's, it's you know, the nature of the piece that it's a bit combustible, keep it away from anything precious. Um, and, okay, that's a kind of comical way of putting it, but there is, it's really extraordinary, I think, how little publishers involve the author 
in, in the processes of, you know, creating a product and selling it. Um, so so let, let's talk about that a bit. And, and, and I want to be really conscious of the other side of the debate, which is if there was somebody from HarperCollins here, they might say, look, Harry, um, the fact is authors do not, they know about writing books, um, but they don't know about designing them, they don't know about marketing them, they don't know about the book trade, uh, and frankly, involving an author in that side of the business is wasting our time, time is money, we've got a completely rational strategy here and we're not about to change it. I, I think if you had a really honest conversation with a publisher, they would say something like that. Again, Claire, would you, you think that's roughly the, the, the truth? And, you know, I think there are big swathes of publishing for which that just has to be completely true. Like, in academic publishing, the cover design doesn't make any difference at all. Why bother to spend an hour with the author working out a cover design, or indeed multiple hours with an author working out cover design? In the end, it's the author's reputation it's the publisher's ability to sell it to the right outlet. So I think there are lots of areas where it's probably true. But again, this kind of bigger consumer-led stuff, I question whether it's true. Take, take the cover design. Um, does, does anyone know how design normally works in a publisher? I mean, the, the editor is the kind of quarterback of the whole process, but how does the editor get a design going? I mean, literally what happens? She doesn't start um, drawing design, so what does happen? She will probably write a, a design brief for, for the, the art director. Um, I have never seen such a design brief because <laughs> I'm only an author. Um, the design brief will certainly cover kind of what sort of content the book has, but it'll also talk about what type of audience it'll have. So you might, well, I mean, I think I characterise this in terms of age, in terms of newspaper readership, uh, small c conservative, as opposed to five-star reading. So. A design brief will kind of characterise the intended audience in those sort of terms. It will characterise the book in terms of content, in terms of style. Like, th this book is sort of light and inviting and, you know, like a really, you know, picking a detail from some kind of medieval illustrated manuscript might look beautiful, but it would say, I'm a serious historical book. So you, you need to think about all of these factors and the publisher, that the editor will give a brief to the art director, the art director will come up with a number of designs. I don't know, to be honest, how much toing and throwing there is between the editor and the art director. I suspect surprisingly little. I don't think it's a question of brainstorming and eight designs popping out and there being a kind of selection process to hone in on one. Um, now, here's my question. I mean, supposing Victoria Barnsley, who's, who's the executive of HarperCollins was sitting there. She just said to me, Harry, let's cut to the chase. Authors get in the way. We don't want you in the way. We give you lunches. We keep you away from precious parts of the building. Um, we issue our editors with fact-proof vest. Um, I, I think I'd say to her, authors are prepared to do virtually any amount of work for free for their book. Of course they are. Um, why doesn't is the author not asked to produce a design brief of their own for the book? Not to supplant the editor's design brief, but a one, and, and they can be given guidelines, a, a one-page brief, who is your audience, what tone is the book, what content is the book? Keep it on one page of A4. Now, hopefully, that will mesh exactly with what the editor says, but no one knows the book like 
the author. Not even remotely. Mitzi would have read this a a number of times. Uh, um, But by the stage when she's giving a brief to the design director, she's probably read it a maximum of two or three times. Now, the author has lived with this friggin' book. Um, And and, an author really has a sense of what tone is intended, what kind of audience is intended. Um, Now, look, some authors will be good at doing that job, other authors will be bad at doing this job. Um, The art director, however, presumably is a semi-rational being and is capable of, you know, accepting two inputs and working with the editor to, you know, if if the author's input is a bit freaky or is unusable, he can just ball it up and chuck it away. But the author feels good about this um, and quite possibly is able to add something to that process. For example, to say the comparable books that I would think of are A, B, C, D and E. And again, the author will have a much better sense of what those comparables are than the editor. Mitzi doesn't just handle historical non-fiction. She handles fiction, she handles non-fiction, she'll handle political stuff, she'll handle memoir stuff. Um, Sure, she knows the book market tremendously well, but she doesn't know the market for this book as well as the author. And not even to ask for design from the uh, author, or or indeed Amazon links, the the books that look good. Now, I know that art directors do kind of browse for inspiration, but they need guidance for their browsing. And again, actually, an author is is in a better position to kind of guide that search than... um, than the editor is. Well, certainly than the art director is. And the editor, you know, why not have why not have two things instead of one? The, and the only extra work that is involved there is that the art director has got to read two one-page briefs instead of one. Uh, and these days, as draft designs are coming up, it's so easy to distribute it by email, so easy to get comments by email, why do you actually not use the author? I don't know. I mean, it, it strikes me as, as totally irrational, but it, but it is universal. It, it's, it's universal in the industry. Other publishers uh, are the same. I mean, the, the, you know, once you get to kind of bestseller standards, then it'll be yes, Lord Archer, well, would you like this or this or this or this or this? And but but at kind of my level in publishing, there is. I, I'm not exaggerating about how little consultation there is. Um, and and by the way. You know, because Mitzi is a good editor, we ended up with a good cover, and, and the art director got this absolutely spot on in the end. But it was alarmingly chaotic, the process of getting there. Uh, and I do really think that publishers tend to have a, you know, never ditch the idea first thought of policy, because it's kind of easier for them. But that first book, the, the, the first set of cover designs, if we'd gone, yep, yeah, great. Um, this book would have sold no copies at all. It, it would have been a horrendous cock-up. Um, now, that was a cock-up rescued, and it was rescued basically by the publisher, not by me. Although that was with me being reasonably assertive with Mitzi all along that I thought they were on the wrong lines as to cover design. Most authors aren't that assertive because they haven't, well, partly because they're, they're not as cantankerous as me, and partly because, you know, first and second and third authors, you know, until you've actually been around a, a bit, you don't feel ready to, to throw your weight around. Um, PR, it's the same thing. I mean, how is it conceivable that it does not make sense to send a PR sheet to an author to say, what do you think? I mean, 
you know, if Victoria Barnsley were here, how could she possibly suggest that was made sense? The, the, this book is um, the most comprehensive look at British exceptionalism ever written. That doesn't mean to say it's the best or anything like that, but it is the most comprehensive. It covers absolutely everything from Victorian sewers to medieval property law. No one, no academic kind of could do this because you know, no academic could possibly have the expertise of all the subjects covered in here. So it, it does need to be a layperson, and it needs to be a layperson kind of willing to <laughs> jump in feet first to territory that he has no right to be, really. So now, we got virtually no reviews on this book. We got, we got one in the Daily Mail. Um, but really, for a book like this, we should have been looking to get reviews in all of the broadsheets. Sundays and dailies. Now, did that press release say this is the most comprehensive view of British exceptionalism ever undertaken? Because, well, I don't know because I haven't seen the press release, but I will bet you a thousand pounds to a penny that the press release did not say that or anything like it. Um, it is kind of marketed as a gift book. So if you're the, um, you know, uh, the, the literary editor on, on a broadsheet, you're going to look, look at the back and think, this is a Christmas stocking book. We don't handle that kind of book. Um, so did the press release effectively convey, this is marketed as a gift book, but my God, it's got some serious things to say, and it's got serious things to say on topics that are of profound interest to your readers. Did it effectively do that? I don't know, because I never saw it. But I, <laughs> I don't think it did. And it's, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, the the it, it is a crapshoot the, the Christmas hardback market. If you make it big, you make it very 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 big, um, because the potential rewards are high. Lots of publishers are publishing hardback nonfiction, which means there is a shortage of review space, which means you are in a fight. So maybe it was a fantastic press release, and we just didn't win. That's possible, or maybe it was an ineffective press release. But how is it rational not to involve the author really closely? And how indeed is it rational to spend only 20 minutes talking to the author about PR avenues for this? Some of, now, the, the PR guy, as I say, he's a really smart guy um, and creative. And he will have read this book and he'll have read it in full and uh, he, he will certainly have understood what the book was all about. Uh, on the other hand, he doesn't know any of those things as well as I do, because mm -hmm. I wrote it. Um, and... I think that you really only get to the, the kind of full range of PR opportunities by actually spending real time with an author and allowing yourself to brainstorm and allowing yourself to go down half a dozen dead ends and just, just you know, really find w what's going on. I mean, again, small thing. Um, it's conventional with these sort of books that publishers ship them out to all kinds of opinion formers and celebs. So a copy of this book will have gone to, and, and again, I'm not kidding here, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Jeremy Paxman, um, uh, Jeremy Clarkson, uh, a bundle of people like this. But it went out to all of those people with, uh, uh, in a HarperCollins envelope with a letter on HarperCollins stationery signed by a HarperCollins employee. Um, none of the books were signed. Uh, none of the letters were personalised. Again. Jeremy Paxman, given that all publishers send books like this to Jeremy Paxman, Jeremy Paxman probably has two or three books popping through his letterbox 
let's say every day, okay, that's not true, every week, let's say, um, what does he do? He probably thinks, not another thing from HarperCollins, bam, in the bin. If the book didn't come from HarperCollins, but from an author, if it had a letter which said, Dear Jeremy, you wrote a book on the English, this is a book which is similar, but it's, I don't know, in some ways, a kind of provocative and interesting letter that signed by the author with a book signed to Jeremy, Love and Squashy Kisses from Harry, would that not be more likely to get Jeremy Paxman's interest? And then, would it not be more likely to excite its author to author, would that not be more likely to excite a comment, an email back from Jeremy Paxman saying, your book looks fantastic. Fantastic Jeremy Paxman. You know, as soon as you have a comment like that, you can use it and you can use it big time. Um, but the kind of corporate style approach universal among publishers, I think do that. Now, you are certainly asking the author to do quite a lot of work with that other approach because you're asking them to write however many letters and send it out. But again, from a publisher's point of view, it's free. You don't have to pay the author. The author will do it for free. Um, and it is surely more effective, and no one does it. In, in the, the story of my career, um, you notice that I kind of ditched fiction uh, and came up with this. Now, HarperCollins knew that this particular horse was kind of fading beneath me. They knew they liked me as an author, and they just kind of waved goodbye. In fact, there was no sort of formal, not nice having you thing, it just ended <laughs> without any kind of, I don't know. <laughs> um, but they end up buying this book at pretty much double what they had bought this one for. Whereas if they had said to me at the end of this one, Harry, your fiction career's not going that great, but you're a smart guy, and we love your writing, do you have any other ideas that you'd like to do for us, and we can have a talk about them? They could have bought this for half the price. Okay, and that's, we're talking now about tens of thousands of pounds. So the, the other um, uh, stuff that I've been talking about, it's kind of all significant, but I think, you know, in terms of the, the, the publisher's bottom line, it's not enormous. It's the sort of swing factors that would shape good publishing, but it doesn't make an enormous difference. But here, just for the failure of that phone call, um, or, or indeed thought process, which doesn't exist anywhere inside the organisation, and HarperCollins is a well-run publisher, they ended up buying this book in a competitive auction for loads more money than they could have bought it for if they had kind of addressed the question to me at an appropriate time after this book. Uh, and that is, like, in terms of their bottom line, really significant, actually. Um, so that pretty much brings me to an end. Just last thought here. All publishers have got um, a human resources department. I happen to know because I caught that ad in the paper. Um, the uh, human resources department head at, fourth, at HarperCollins earns a quarter of a million quid. Okay, that's quite a lot of money. At least it's quite a lot of money to me. I don't know about you. Um, uh, and yet, the human resources does not include authors. Authors are bombs, not resources. And it seems to me uh, just bizarre that when it's so obvious publishing, one of the major human resources they have is authors, duh, they pay no attention to it. There is no one whose job it is in a publisher to think about authors in any systematic way. And I, I think there's mostly I've just been talking about the commercial issues and the way I think that all over the place publishers are kind of leaving dollops of money lying on the ground because they haven't you know, really thought about how to use authors to 
to, to pick those bits of money up. But I think there's an ethical issue as well. Um, authors are very badly paid on the whole. They have much more uh, insecure careers than uh, publishers do, or indeed than <laughs> pretty much anyone does. And actually, a little bit of thought is probably important. So, uh, you know, an author is not an employee, fair enough, but all of these big, you know, conglomerate publishers, um, they've got uh, children's departments, they've got reference departments, they've got historical departments, um, they've got all sorts of departments that are actually continually needing product, and plenty of their authors are perfectly capable of supplying it, but they would never think of saying, you're an author we like on the fiction side, let's, let's talk about your career more generally, what are other kind of things you'd like to write, let's, let's see if we can sort of help shape, not a career plan for you because you're you know, not employed, but nevertheless, how can we help you? And I think there's an ethical issue there as well as a commercial one. Uh, okay, I've, I've overrun the, the Q&A time, but um, I'm done. What okay. can be done for this relationship? You pointed out some, some dysfunctionalities, <laughs> let's say, of the relationship between authors, authors and publishers. Well, what can authors do to improve this? Oh, authors can't do anything. <laughs> Essentially, authors can't do anything. I mean, I, I, I am reasonably willing to throw my weight around by the standards of most authors, and as I say, I'm more experienced than, than many authors. Authors can't do it, it's down to publishers. And, and until you actually change the culture of the organisation, which thinks, yeah, let's use authors, and that, that would, you know, let's, let's work to use authors, um, until you have that kind of cultural shift in an organisation, it won't happen. Maybe some meetings, some, some joint meetings between publishers and authors will be such. Yeah, but it, won't, <laughs> but it won't happen. I mean, not, not until you guys are um, <laughs> chief executives and you think, what does that guy say? <laughs> it's, it's really nice to hear that authors would like to be involved, but I wanted to ask, how many authors do you think? Like, do you think all the authors really wanted to be involved? Oh. And, followingly, wouldn't they, wouldn't they, like, get more money for that from the very no. beginning if they no. knew this process looked like that no. they have much more no. job to do? That's the wonderful thing. Authors <laughs> want to be involved, and they will do it for free. And all authors want to be more involved. I mean, it depends what kind of book you're talking about. If, if somebody commissioned me to write a series of 10 short kind of kids' educational books for the sort of 7 to 8 history market, no, I wouldn't want to be more involved. I'd want to do the commission, take my money, and leave it. But, but for these kind of books, all authors want to be more involved, and they will work for free. It, it's significant that self-published authors... Um, I mean, a lot of them are cranks, but the ones who aren't cranks will do anything to distribute their books and really resourceful, really effectively, and for pretty small rewards. And they do that because they want to get their stuff out there. Publishers don't use, don't even think of accessing uh, an author's dynamism in that way. I, I guess if you're really talking about, let's say, a Welsh author, you know, crisscrossing Welsh bookshops to get his stuff into those bookshops, yeah, you'd have, at that point, you'd have to start talking about additional financial contribution. But basically, authors will do an awful lot for free, and they want to be asked. I mean, I don't know a lot about the process, but I, did, I have read, I read a bit of one book, it was called something like A Thousand and One Ways to Market Books, and that was very much aimed towards not just the publishers, but the writers. So, I mean, if research has been done on this, why are publishers not doing it? Um, that book, which I've read, is largely aimed at the non-fiction market and it's largely aimed at the sort of specialist non-fiction market. So, you know, 
again, if, if you're writing a book on guinea pig breeding, then that is the sort of thing where the author probably knows the, the guinea pig breeders association and the relevant newsletters and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I just don't know whether publishers in those kind of markets do use authors. Um, but what I do know, but, but here, it, it's not as obvious. Here, you're, you're distributing through Waterstones and Borders and hopefully Tesco's and Smith's as well. Uh, and those kind of techniques are harder to, to deploy, I think. Very much.